Sometimes life feels like a series of slaps in the face. This is where we begin this morning as we study First Peter with the slaps that life gives us. I graduated from high school a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. And I came to Christ a few years later in college. Now, if you come to Christ in college and you're serious about following Jesus and you're, you're serious particularly about the call for Christians not to be drunk and you're serious about the call of Christians not to take part in sex outside of marriage, that that beautiful thing God has created would be for commitment and marriage. If you're, if you're serious about those two things and you're in college, your dating pool shrinks to a small puddle. And when I looked into that puddle, I was often not sure I wanted to fish for what was swimming around in it. So I'm no prize, but I do have standards. And I prayed for all those years in college, God would bring me someone who believed as I believed. But uh, I was entering the senior year. It had been one long, long dry spell with no end in sight. It was like a big slap. You can be slapped professionally in the Christian life. It can cost you money and promotions and positions. C.S. Lewis was one of the greatest Christian writers of the last century. He taught medieval literature at Oxford. He was never given a professorship at Oxford because his outspokenness about his Christian beliefs was considered anti-intellectual, not uh, too archaic and passe. It, it cost him ever getting a professorship at Oxford. Um, Professionally, a local stage actor here in Kansas City told me that the director's casting couch, you know, where you go in an office and sexual favors are traded for roles, is still an important part of the casting process in a lot of local uh, stage productions here in our city. And we wonder why there aren't more Christians in arts and media. Some of you experience this in your workplace. You are competing with coworkers for promotions and, and salaries and, and positions um, who will cross ethical lines to get there to make a sale, to make a deal that you won't cross. And they literally climb right over the top of you and your Christian beliefs to get where they're going. Um, some of you are pressured by your businesses to take part in unethical practices that make competition unfair, that might even be illegal. And that uh, is the pressure you experience in your workplace. And sometimes you pray, God, if you would vindicate me, the, the way of honesty and truth would be shown to make more money for this company in the long run than cheating. And, you know, it just doesn't turn out that way. And you get the big slap. And I really feel for those of you who take part in compassionate ministry in the community and the slaps that you get. Um, I mean... I watch you all work, and I see you try to do something good in this town or any town for someone who's hurting. Try to do something charitable for the poor. Try to rehabilitate a criminal and watch the mountain of government regulation and red tape come to bury you and slap you back down to where you were before. Some of you serve in ministries that suffer this and serve on boards, and you receive a weekly slap from some government organization that's holding you back. We want to follow God. I want to do these good things for God in the world. And these are the things that happen to us. And we cry out to God, where are you? How is this happening? And we're shocked that in the process of trying to do good, you can be treated so badly. And then comes the biggest slap of all, the slap that comes to us from the scriptures. From 1 Peter this morning, 
where the word of God says to us, you're being slapped for trying to do good. Why are you acting surprised? You didn't know that was going to happen? Chapter 4, verse 12 of 1 Peter. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that's taking place among you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Peter's telling his church, what did you think was going to happen? Did you think you could just escape from hell and hell was going to sit still and let you go? Oh, okay. Now you're inviting your friends to church. You're inviting your co-workers to come join your small group. You're inviting your neighbors to come be part of men's breakfast or women's ministry or Mercy Street. And now you're rescuing other prisoners from hell. And you thought, you thought that the world would sit still and just take that? Peter gives us a little shake and a little slap from our hysteria. He says, stop acting surprised. You knew this was going to happen. We knew this was going to happen. Every major biblical writer has had this moment with, uh, with their churches. Paul wrote to his, this to his church in uh, Thessalonica. In fact, when we were with you, we told you beforehand that we were to suffer persecution. So it turned out, as you now know. John had this moment with his churches, probably in Ephesus. He said, do not be astonished, brothers and sisters, that the world hates you. Jesus had this moment with the disciples in the Last Supper in the upper room. He said, if the world hates you, be aware it hated me before it hated you. If you belong to the world, the world would have loved you as its own. But because you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you? Servants are not greater than their master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. And this is what was happening in the church when Peter wrote this letter we now call 1 Peter. The Roman world was a, not so different from our world, truthfully. Um, now, in the Roman world, they had slavery, and at one time, the city of Rome, two-thirds of everybody was classified as some sort of slave in the city of Rome. And a Roman um, slave owner had sexual rights to his slaves of both genders. You think they were just going to give that up because it would be nice Influential people in Roman communities would throw parties and it was uh, considered the way it was going to go that everyone would be drunk by the end of the party. It would be wild and it would last long into the night. And Peter says, you thought they were just going to just stop doing that? It was expected at those parties that the one throwing it would provide the prostitutes like human party favors for the guests. That was considered good Roman manners. If you didn't worship the emperor at the start and the end of your business meeting. In Rome, they called you an atheist, even if you had another god. If you didn't worship their gods, they called you an atheist in your business meetings. In a culture that valued conformity, nonconformists like Christians were looked down on, made fun of, and if they wanted to push it, they could be killed. The Christian life was directly opposed to the most lucrative and the most thrilling parts of Roman life. And, and I don't think it's all that much different for us. We come crashing into the world and we see all these things we think everybody should think would be good if it was changed. Christians think, wouldn't it be great if unfair labor practices were erased and unfair ethical, uh, unethical business practices were erased and everybody just did buying and selling on a, on a playing field with honesty and integrity. We think that would be great. Wouldn't it be great if poverty was erased? 
Wouldn't it be great if sexual exploitation was erased, that the sex, this thing God was created, happened only in a context of commitment and love and never in exploitation? And we think, wouldn't everybody like that? But we're naive because we forget there are highly placed and powerful people who benefit from all those things just the way they are. They derive their power and their wealth from poverty, from exploitation, from unethical behavior. And so when, the, when they see us coming to change those things, they will stop us. The church was shocked that God would let persecution happen in Peter's day, but Peter slaps them awake and says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that's taking place to test you as though something strange were happening to you. And then he gives them a second slap, which is even more shocking, verse 13. He says, but rejoice insofar as you are sharing Christ's suffering, so that you may also be glad and shout for joy when his glory is revealed. Rejoice, be glad, and shout for joy in the midst of suffering? I got a difficult question card turned in once. Those cards are difficult questions folks would like to hear addressed in a message. And the question said, what do my friends who don't believe in God and sin regularly get to live the good life? It seems like those who follow Jesus live less comfortable lives. I didn't answer that back then because I was in my 20s, but I, here's what I knew then and I still know. Of course that's the way it is. The world doesn't shame and oppress people who think like the world thinks and do what the world do, does. Of course they live more comfortable lives. Jesus said, if you belonged to the world, it would have loved you like its own, but you don't. If they shame you, Peter says rejoice. It may be one of the signs you're living for Jesus. Now your life is actually crashing in to the sin of the world and the sin of the world is unhappy. Because if they weren't shaming you, it might be that you looked so much like them they couldn't even tell you were a follower of Jesus. I want to tell you the story of the 40 martyrs of Sebaste. Their images appear a lot in artwork in Armenia. They were 40 Roman soldiers. And there were 40 Roman soldiers who were all followers of Jesus. And it came time for them to do their worship of the emperor, to bow down to an image of the emperor of Rome. And these 40 said, we're not doing that. We're followers of Jesus. We, we are soldiers. We're serving the Roman Empire, but we're not doing that. And their commander said, oh, really? They're stationed in Armenia in the winter. So he marched the 40 of them out onto a lake that was frozen over. And he ordered them stripped of all their armor and gear and surrounded by guards. And they were to stand there until they repented of their belief in Jesus and bowed to an image of the emperor. And the sun went down. And the wind came across that frozen lake. And they stood there huddled together. And by the middle watches of the night, they started dying of exposure. Some would slip down and when they would hit the ice, they'd freeze solid almost immediately. Just before dawn, there was only a handful left. And one of them couldn't stand it anymore. And he walked off the ice and he put back on his armor and he picked up his weapon and put on his cloak. He renounced Jesus. He bowed to an image of the emperor and he went off 
and he lived. Now there is 39 martyrs on the lake. But one of the guards guarding them stood there the whole night and he saw kind of his whole life encapsulated in that moment. Here I stand forcing people to freeze to death because they won't bow to another man. He considered his life as a Roman soldier built on oppressing others, killing others, raping others, stealing from others. We know Roman soldiers did all of these things. And he saw a life that wasn't worth living anymore. He'd rather suffer righteously and die than live high on a life built on destruction. So one of the guards threw down his spear, took off his armor, his cloak. He went out and he stood in the middle of the lake with the 39. And he died with them by morning. And they were still the 40 martyrs of Sebaste by sunup. And on that night, evil was shown for what it is, a dead-end path that ends in cruelty. I mean, who makes someone freeze to death for not bowing down to another person? And good that night was shown for what it is, something that lives on principle, something that will not turn away from God, and something willing even to die for those principles. And on that night, we all learn that God is the judge of all, and he's the only one we need to please with our life. How can we rejoice and be glad and shout for joy in our suffering? Um, Peter just has a really simple answer, and this is maybe the whole sermon in one sentence here. This is very not clever, not brilliant, but it kind of says this. He's king of the universe. If you follow him, it's going to go well for you. And if you don't, it won't. And that's all I got. And so rejoice now, even if you suffer, because you know you're on the side that prevails in the end. You know you're on the right side, and that's all we got for you, period. And that's enough. So how do we live how do we live in light of this kind of bottom line? First, Peter has another little shake awake for us. He says, now don't think every time you're suffering, you're suffering for Jesus. Verse 14, he said, if, if you're reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory, which is the spirit of God, is resting on you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, a criminal, or even as a mischief maker. Peter says, you know, we know Christians sometimes go out and do horrible things are horrible to people. They commit crimes, and then they get censored, they get put in prison, they get oppressed. Don't in that moment say, oh, I'm suffering for Jesus. Peter says, no, you're suffering because you're a jerk <laughs> in that moment. That's just the pain of, that comes with the sin you've committed. So he says, make sure if you're suffering, you're only suffering because you have done good, never because you've done evil. Then he goes on to verse 16. Yet, if any of you suffers as a Christian, do not consider it a disgrace, but glorify God because you bear his name. So if you're single, and it's been going on a long time, and there's no end in sight, can you still pray, Father, I'm dedicated to you, even if it never brings romantic love, because that's not what I got into this for. And the alternative is to go back to the world and have what the world has to offer in terms of romantic love. And I think you've already shown me that's in the end not worth having. 
In the meantime, Father, give me peace. I prayed a prayer just like that in August, driving to my senior year. And uh, in God's mercy, and you know, this isn't a, a guarantee, but it is my story. And in August, I prayed that prayer, and I showed up to class. And in the class was Ashley, right, right there under the wire before I graduated. And, and, and we did end up married. So God was very good. Like I said, not a guarantee, but that is the end of that story. For our students who are going off to college, going back to college, you know, congratulations on graduating and sticking in there. Um, this is a chance to reinvent yourself, of course, different circle of people, different town. You can be anybody you want to be. Be a follower of Jesus. Be who you really are. And be, be part of that life that's the only life worth having. And for those of you who are business owners and your business people and your business professionals, continue to be content with only what you can earn ethically. Everything above that is not worth having. And you already knew that. You already knew that money doesn't buy happiness, especially if you have to sell your soul for it. And you already knew that. And God has given you work and given you all you need, and so we can rejoice. God is the judge of all, and he's the only one we need to please with our life. And believe it or not, Peter still has a slap left for us, in case we're still hysterical. Verse 17, he says, For the time has come for judgment to begin with the household of God. If it begins with us, what will be the end for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it's hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and sinners? Peter says, it's hard for anyone to be saved. Even the most righteous person, it's so hard, in fact, Jesus came for us. Jesus came and gave his life, and we celebrated it in communion, his body and his blood. He gave his life for us because it seems we can't get through this life without sinning, any of us. And without sinning pretty often, in my case. So he came for us. When I tested for black belt, I was 15 years old. I, I now can't believe they do this stuff to such young children, but um, it's a long ordeal, that test. It was like a three-hour test. There was punching, and there's kicking, and there's board breaking, and there's, you know, fighting, and then some more fighting, and then let's have some more fighting. And then you get to the end of all that, and they're like, okay, now get on the floor. You're going to do 100 push-ups and 100 sit-ups in a minute. And, you know, this is where it really gets decided. Like, oh, great. So I get down, and, I, you know, they start the buzzer, and I do 100 of some kind of a push-up. I have reviewed the video. It wasn't whatever they were. I did 100 of them. And, um, and then they say, okay, now the sit-ups. They start the clock. I, I, they end the clock. I have not done 100. Like, okay, well, you're going to do them again. Start the clock. I do these sit-ups, and I, the buzzer sounds. I have not done 100. Second time. And they go, okay, well, walk around, do what you need to do for a couple minutes, and you're, you're going to do this again. So I guess I've already been through all that other stuff for three hours, and, 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 now, and now this. So I get down, they start the clock, and I'm going, I'm going, I'm going. And my instructor's wife, who's also a black belt, she gets up off the panel, which they almost never do. She walks out onto the floor. She gets right over the top, and she goes, Go, Garrett! You're too slow! Move it! You've got to go faster! Get up! And if she could, she would have reached down and slapped me. 
because she knew some things I didn't know. She knew they don't recommend you for this test until they're already sure you can pass it. And she knew they already have your belt in the room and they've already embroidered your name on it. It's, it's, sitting, it's sitting right up there. And you, she knew you can't fail this thing if you just keep trying. They know no one can do what they're asking. You can't lose this belt by being weak at this point or making a mistake, but you can give it away by quitting. You can throw in the towel and that'll be that. So the buzzer sounded and I had done 100, but I'm fairly sure it was a metric minute. So. <laughs> Christ has already died for you. And you suffer because you live life for him. And sometimes in your battle against your own sin and the sin of the world, you win big. And sometimes in those battles, you lose big. But you can't lose the salvation Christ won for you because of your fatigue or some mistake. But you can give it away by quitting. By saying it's not worth living that way anymore and going back to the world by ceasing the struggle. That's why Peter said in verse 17, for the time has come for judgment to begin with the household of God. Peter says, forget about some judgment day where there's going to be some trial later. It's already happening, and it started right here in the church, Peter says. Look around. Everything you're going through, this is part of the final judgment. It's testing you, and it's showing what you're made of. And the world that's attacking you, it's showing what they're made of. It's already in play, folks. The game is afoot. The trial is in progress, and everything you see is part of it, and it's testing you, and it's testing everyone, and it's strengthening you, and you don't believe that now because it's so painful and lonely, but it is strengthening you. What you're going through right now is exactly the thing in five years you'll go, well, I don't know much, but I know one thing. And it's going to be something you've learned right now. You're already so much closer than you think to God. There was a pastor in Africa in the 1980s and his village was being persecuted and he was told, you'll stand out here and you'll repent of belief in Jesus or you'll be killed. He said, let me go in my office and think about it. So he went in his office, he came back out, he wrote a few notes, he came back out a few minutes later, he said, I'm not giving up faith in Jesus. So they shot him right there. We don't even know his name. But... Later on, this note was found among his belongings. I'm part of the fellowship of the unashamed, he wrote. The die has been cast. I've stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I'm a disciple of his, and I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My future is secure. I'm done and finished with low living, sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tame divisions, mundane talking, cheap living, and dwarfed goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits, or popularity. I don't have to be right or first or tops or recognized or praised or rewarded. I live by faith, lean on his presence, walk by patience, lift by prayer and labor by Holy Spirit power. 
My face is set. My gate is fast. My goal is heaven. My road may be narrow. My way rough. My companions few. But my guide is reliable and my mission is clear. I will not be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded, or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice or hesitate in the presence of adversity. I will not negotiate at the table of the enemy, ponder at the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, shut up, or let up until I stayed up, stored up, prayed up, paid up, and preached up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus. I must give until I drop, preach until all know, and work until he comes. And when he does come for his own, he'll have no problems recognizing me. My colors will be clear. Amen. God is the judge of all. Never be disappointed about your decision to follow Christ. He's given us the only life worth having, and he's the only one we need to please with that life. So let us rejoice for what lay ahead for us. Let us stand together and read the final verses of this passage, verse 19. So, if you are suffering in a manner that pleases God, keep on doing what is right and trust your lives to God who created you, for he will never fail you. And on this foundation we stand. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, one holy church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.